As you can imagine, this is going to be complex and uh, all of that stuff. So it's very much echoing what we got this morning as well. Um, uh, so this it's, it's an exploration through reflective questions and stories. So I'm going to be drawing a bit on my, my own experiences researching. Um, and it, it, it's really an argument for reflexivity. Um, so, which is why I'm starting actually with this quote. So um, this is actually from Eli Wiesel's Night. Um, and he, he writes, every question possessed the power that did not lie in the answer. Um, and I think when we think about ethics, this is really something worth keeping in mind that, um, especially when we're researching marginalized groups, so for example, with race and ethnicity, um, it's questioning ourselves that sort of holds power um, because there's a kind of thinking that starts to happen when we're questioning ourselves. Um, and so it's not about finding the answer, but rather the thoughts and the type of thinking that revolves around those questions. Um, so this is very much going to be exploring questions. Um, so there's going to be lots of questions and sub-questions. Um, and those questions are just going to sort of be put into the room. Um, and then I'm going to be, like I said, drawing from my own experiences as research. So all the examples come from my research specifically. And the idea is sort of to show my own vulnerability and the own, my own questions that I was going through as I did these research and how I sort of was trying to engage with it. Um, um, and obviously, as I explore questions, more questions are going to come up. Um, so I guess I would say my overall argument is that reflexivity is our, our primary ethical tool. Um, and reflexivity as in, you know, the nature of ethics and qualitative research um, and how ethical practice in research can be achieved. So once again, going beyond these forms, but actually how do we practice ethics? Um, and this is also therefore important to remember that reflexivity is not a single universal entity. It's far from it. Um, rather, it's a process, an active ongoing process that saturates every stage which is why my questions that I'm looking at sort of cover um, not every stage, but a good chunk of the different stages of research. Um, so I'm going to start off with who I am, um, because it matters. It matters when you have participants, and it matters when there are issues of power, and when you're researching race and ethnicity, there are issues of power. So who am I? Um, who's actually speaking? So foregrounding stories and making sure you're foregrounding their stories and their silences and sort of respecting that silence. Um, who am I working for? So institutions that we represent when we walk into research and we conduct research. Um, how can I write this? So thinking of writing as an act against injustice. Um, and how do we do this? And how do we know we're doing this? Um, and what happens when it's out of my hands? And this is actually a question that I'm struggling with right now. So the questions are even that much more um, uh, very personal in that sense, because it's what's our responsibility when we're done with what gets done with our research, especially researching in education and higher education. A lot of times our research is informing things, and what does that mean to inform things? So I'm going to be drawing on two research projects that I've conducted, um, sort of as, as my stories, if you will. Uh, the first is a piece of uh, pedagogical practice-based action research that I conducted in Kazakhstan on transnational higher education um, along the lines of critical thinking, criticality, and ethnicity played a huge role in that. Um, so my participants were high, uh, ethnically diverse in a context where ethnicity, so Kazakh, 
um, is com uh, commonly conflated with citizenship, so Kazakhstani, and what does it mean to be a certain ethnicity that isn't Kazakh, well being Kazakhstani, so all sorts of issues with power there. Um, and then my second piece of research that I look at is at uh, black, Asian, and minority ethnic attainment gaps in UK higher education. Um, so this involved um, interviewing participants as well as looking at BME attainment gaps. Um, and it, the research was commissioned by the university in response to new Office for Students um, sort of call to close attainment gaps. Uh, and then, so it was used to create school-wide policy. So there's a clear practice implication on that as well. So, who am I and really, why does it matter? Um, so, there are always problematic relationships in terms of power because of who I represent um, and what my own ethnic identity is and how it's perceived in relation to potential participants. Um, and there's also potential issues about insider-outsider in terms of researching within my own institutions. Um, and then also the issues of researching ethnic minorities while being an ethnic minority and the whole ethical questions that arise from that. Um, and, you know, what does it mean to conduct, you know, research on race and ethnicity in the current context? And I think that's a question we have to keep asking ourselves. Um, and so this question of whom I am in my research, there's sort of a, a dual risk that happens, right? So depending on who you are doing your research, you could either be doing research, um, you know, where it's ethnic minorities are expected to do research on ethnic minorities. That's what you do. And there's an ethical question there of should we be encouraging that discourse? But on the flip side, there's the risk of othering going on by those who have an invisible ethnicity who are who are the norm. So in this context, that would be white, right? So how do we, you know, mitigate this? It's sort of an ethical mess of contributing to either discourse. So um, let's start with me, because I think it's easiest if we now go through myself as an example. So who am I? Well, I am uh, black African and white European. Uh, my father is black, my mother is white. Um, and uh, the, so this brings up, depending on my context, lots of issues around mixed raceness and how we understand mixed raceness, the interpretations of it. Depending on the room I walk into, I can be racialized in a thousand different ways and I never know how I'm being racialized, but there are always issues around that. Um, I have an American accent um, and I've had access to very, you know, sort of what gets called upper middle class or, or whatever education systems. Um, and so this gives me a certain capital, uh, cultural capital that I bring in, both in how I'm perceived um, by certain groups, but also the access that I have to exclusive and elite spaces. Um, so a clear privilege. Um, and then I also reside uh, in a country where I am neither originally from nor where my family lives. Um, and so I'm constantly negotiating between either being perceived as the privileged expat depending on the situation that I'm in, um, where ethnicity and race becomes invisible, or I'm being judged as, is she a good migrant or a bad migrant, right? And I never, depending on the space I walk into, this changes. Um, so the question becomes then, in relation to my participants, where does this power, um, privilege, um, oppression come into play? So in Kazakhstan, I represented power, both institutionally and contextually. The American accent in Kazakhstan 
meant that I represented, especially in a university, I represented access to elite institutions, to American institutions, to the best universities in the world, right? Um, I sounded like power, the way I spoke, the way I did things, therefore, well, she sounds like power, so she must be power. And in this sense, my race became invisible because I was the expat. I was the expat outsider that could give you access to things. Um, and then I was also a lecturer at the institution, so, you know, teaching your participants <laughs> as it's action research, there's always the issue of the power to fail, right, or to pass, and, and what that does to a relationship. Um, but in the UK, that changes a little bit. Um, researching BME students, um, I became a brown woman that may or may not be the same racial background as my participants, but uh, a racial minority. Um, and I rep but I still represented institutional power because I was researching their experiences and their recommendations to the school in order to influence the university's policy. So I was still, there's still an issue of power there. In the context of Kazakhstan, um, you know, so there was that question, right, where on one side it's uh, ethnic minorities doing research on ethnic minorities, but on the other side it's the othering. And in Kazakhstan, the, the the question that I have to worry about is, what are the risks of othering as an outsider doing research on ethnic minorities? And I would say the risk is high, very high. Um, and in order to minimize that risk, I needed to be aware of sort of the dual history that renders ethnic uh, minority communities invisible and pathological and the misrepresentations of them. Um, so in other words, whose voices in society aren't being heard and how are they being stereotyped? So. I have to ask the question, what are the history of ethnic minorities and their invisibility in Kazakhstan? So for example, uh, Chechen citizens, and I'm gonna return to Chechen as a specific example just because it's a very easy one and there's a Chechen participant in my research, um, are, are, are stereotyped as corrupt and, and, and thieves. And this is something that comes up in lots of literature, whether it was Solzhenitsyn and Applebaum, this sort of discourse of what the Chechen is. Um, and it was brought in by the participants as well. And this was linked to you know, World War II history, a distrust of ethnic minorities under Stalin, and the forceful uh, migration of them. And so recognizing that this history contributes to how they are viewed today. Um, so that also means, as I'm doing this, and as I'm learning about this invisibility, also, at the same time, how do I ensure that I'm representing these participants as real-life participants and not turning them into monolithic characters where they just become the representation of a particular history only. And so that balance, and how do we create that balance? And linked to that are what are the risks of institutional power? Like as we, in both cases, in Kazakhstan and in the UK, I definitely represented. Um, and so for me, this was definitely a need to engender a two-way relationship in research. Um, and so this meant being willing to answer any question that I posed to my participants, that I asked nothing of them that I was unwilling to give them. And so, which kind of goes a little bit against, you know, your standard, you know, question, answer, question, answer of, of uh, interview research. And then for my UK participants, that meant claiming solidarity with my participants in their experience of marginalization in higher education and recognizing that. Um, rather than pretending to be objective and not having anything that we shared or had in common. Um, but this then brings up complicated issues of the shifting nature of consent. 
right? Because as I'm sharing my own stories, and they begin to share their stories, and maybe the stories are going into a direction that the initial research hadn't intended, have they actually consented to that as we've gone on in this dialogic? And how do you manage to ensure that that consent is still in play that you gave at the beginning of you know, the research? Um, so this is starting to get into my second question, uh, which is very much, who's actually speaking, right? Because who am I is always in relation to them. And then, so then in that case, who are they and what are they saying? Um, so that means that I need to listen, I need to trust, and I need to hold the space. Be willing to be in that often quite uncomfortable space and hold it. Um, and I need to respect the agency um, of my participants to change their mind, because they may, um, but also to be silent, which I think sometimes is harder in qualitative research, because how do you analyze silence? But to be able to respect that. Um, and so uh, Gonzalez talks about uh, maintaining a posture of radical openness um, to be able to hear or, or see what's being said or not said, to being committed to the truthfulness of the experiences of race and ethnicity in higher education, and sort of believing your participants <coughs> in what they tell you, in the stories they share, um, and being in that moment. So, for example, in the UK, there were lots of stories of microaggressions, um, interpretations of intent behind those aggressions, um, and group storytelling, because I did both interviews and focus groups. Um, and so being able to hear those. Um, and then in Kazakhstan, um, there was a situation which I call sort of silent while speaking, where, so I did a series of interviews throughout the academic year, action research, and then at the very end, um, it was the final interview, and all my participants wanted to do it and have the dialogue with me, but they didn't want it to be part of the research. And so that's that they were speaking, but they had actually reached a point where they didn't want that to be public speaking, if you will. They wanted it to be silent. Um, and so, you know, in a way, that's sort of an agency of silence, maybe. Um, and, and that means recognizing that silence can either be a failure to recognize injustice, um, but it can also be a strategic silence, um, out of calculation, or anything else altogether. Silence, there are so many reasons why we're silent. Um, and so I, I like what Lewis says, which is, you know, we need as well to hear both the voices and the silences with which women engage our social world. And I would argue that this is true of racial and ethnic minorities as well, that there is silence in which we engage our worlds, and therefore, when our participants choose to be silent, either by withdrawing consent or by actually just sitting quietly in a room, that needs to be respected. And without indulging the need to justify it, to interpret it, or to speak for or to the silence. And I think that's really important to think about um, in how we represent um, participants in research and we think ethically is how do we just be comfortable with that silence and not justify it. So, um, so if we think about my first question, which is who am I in relation to my participants, and then tie it to the who's speaking, there's sort of a, a dilemma that we're trying to balance here on an ethical level, right? Which is, one, my right as researchers to speak, right? 
I, as a researcher, am telling a story. When you do a piece of research, you are telling a story. Um, but then there's that relationship between uh, what Fox calls narrator, but participant, and researcher, right? And that when you come together and tell stories together, that's a moment of creation. That's a moment of something going on, um, hopefully rapport building and, and, and sharing. Um, and then there's the legitimacy of your participant's voice. And how do you balance your right to speak with their voices and to ensure that you're not imposing your voice on their voice? Um, so how do I balance these three in my work for race and ethnicity? And then sort of the trifecta of the power relations, of course, is the institutions. So both research projects I did, um, and probably will continue doing, if I'm honest, especially now that um, BME attainment um, is being paid more attention to in the current climate here in the UK. Um, I'm probably going to be doing even more sort of institutionally based research. Um, there's sort of a, these two issues of power at play at the same time. They're, they're never both gone. And one is researcher as potential agent of power, and therefore to be distrusted um, and, and fear of surveillance. But at the same time, the researcher can also be an agent of change. So you represent, through these collections of stories, you could represent the institution finally being willing to change, to act more, more, a little more justly. Um, and so how do we mitigate the first while still and amplifying the second, knowing that they'll never go away? Um, and I go back to what I said before when I was talking about who am I in relation to my participants. It's that notion of solidarity and that notion of reciprocity, of being always willing to give that which you're taking, so that you're not just mining, but you're actually sharing. Um, of course, this comes with potential issues of disclosure when you work at the institutions. Um, so as a member of an institution, I know who are responsible for acts of surveillance in Kazakhstan and acts of discrimination and not-so-microaggressions in the UK. So for example, in my research in Kazakhstan, I had a participant tell me that um, the, the university psychologist was actually reporting back on ethnic minority students who were coming to meet with her. And what does it mean to now hold that knowledge, to know who that person is, to know who the people in the school administration are that that's happening in, so the acts of surveillance. And in the case of UK, I mean, uh, there's one that sticks in my head, but a, a head of department telling a student, your ethnicity doesn't exist. And how do you now go, I know who you are. <laughs> and what, how do I now manage, what are our meetings with that person? And so there are ethical issues here in terms of respecting what was shared in confidence, in terms of identity, but at the same time, knowing these individuals are at play. And that's the stuff I can pick up on in terms of I'm aware of. You know, we're unconditioned to think in the interest of the institution. I work for the institution. So what are the things that I can't see because I'm thinking in the interest of that institution. So what are the things I'm not even picking up on, and how can I pick up on this? So this leads us to, <laughs> how can I write this? Um, this was a, a, yeah, this is getting more recent, so these, these sort of carry a little bit more weight. 
Um, I, I like this idea of accountability. So when we are accountable, and we use this word a lot, accountability, who am I accountable to, right? And when we, we're telling a story, we're accountable to the story. Um, so in, in practice, this reflects our ability to explain how we came to know what we know. So how do we tell the stories, how do I tell the stories of ethnic minority and students of color, um, and what does it mean to know these stories? Um, what does it mean to, to be the one who is now accountable for telling those stories? Um, so account here is to tell an account, is how Gonzalez is interpreting this term. Um, so for example, um, well, I'll move on to the next and then we'll go into an example. Um, and then there's the issue of balancing between telling these stories, telling the account, but protecting participants in terms of the very nature of being an ethnic minority or a racial minority is the fact that there is low representation of these groups in institutions, right? So how do I anonymize enough to hide identities while ensuring the stories are heard? So for example, uh, this Chechen student that I've sort of alluded to um, was, I mean, in an institution where there were very few students from, uh, from the Caucasus in general, much less Chechen, um, yet what gave his story power was his ethnic identity and how he navigated the world through it and challenged the world through it. So where is the balance of telling his story while also protecting him from the institution? And how do you write that? Related to that is also then the weight of the words we use. So when, when your participants are telling you stories of what I call not so microaggressions, do we attribute them as racism? Do we attribute them as discrimination? Or do we call them bias? And then I put the implicit and unconscious because that commonly gets thrown in next to the bias. Um, when they are calling for changes to their curriculum because they find their curriculum to be Eurocentric and white men, are they making calls for decolonizing or are they making calls for diversifying? What is the word you choose to use? Um, when they say that institutions are not places where they are comfortable, is it because they want to be welcomed or is it because they want an intellectual home? And linked to that, are they looking for inclusion or are they looking for acceptance? Um, and sort of linked to the, the racism question is when they're reporting these incidents, do we write it as perceptions of racism or do we write it as racism? So what are my responsibilities in the words I choose to represent my participants and their demands for justice? Knowing that these are politically charged words and if I'm writing them for an institution, what are they going to hear? And then what does it happen when it's out of my hands? So the research is done. The policy paper based off of the research is written. It gets passed through committee. Now what? So to what extent am I responsible for how the research gets used by the institution once it's completed? So an example of this here in the UK, um, I was presenting my research, which included actually quantitative data as well as these interviews and focus groups um, about the situation at, at the university um, to key stakeholders who are in charge of handling 
the education and curriculum for departments. And the response was one of denial of institutional racism, disbelief in the quantitative numbers that the attainment gaps were indeed that severe, blame towards the students for not being able to attain at the same level, and a desire to implement a deficit model in which it was about fixing students. So has my research now caused more harm? So those were my questions. As I said, I just sort of dropped them in the room. <laughs> Uh, but you can see how sort of that reflexive ethical thinking sort of has to be embedded throughout. And, it, and also how context shapes and shifts how the questions are posed and, and what that means. Um, and it's about navigating the difficulty to find how we want to act within the specifics of our own research. Um, and I sort of want to end with this, where uh, Bell says uh, in, in her work that uh, part of researching race and ethnicity is to give voice to a double trauma, first of racialized violence, whether this is symbolic or physical, um, and the second is to a loss of voice. Um, this is deeply ethically problematic in light of political and contextual context, uh, contextual uh, relations between researcher, researched, and the reader, intended audience. But I do want to end with Spivak, which is, as long as one remains aware that it is problematic. There is some hope.